0: All across America, May and June, are filled with school and graduation speeches. I have even given a few myself. How many of you have ever listened to a commencement address? You've heard a commencement speech? Yes, you will agree with me, probably there are large sections of such speeches that are frankly very forgettable. And that includes the ones I have given. And the blasé, boilerplate nature of commencement speeches is getting worse. Have you noticed this? Because of our speech police and because of audiences who are terrified of running into ideas they don't like, they're getting more and more boring. But one of the best graduation speeches has a commencement action that is memorable and inspiring. Something to hang on to, right? There's something there that is, let's call it a boiler maker instead of boilerplate. The uh, best graduation speech I've heard recently was given uh, to literal Boilermakers. Mitch Daniels, who's president of Purdue University, addressed the graduates there in May of 2017. Uh, In case you don't know, Purdue graduates are called Boilermakers, and he said this to the graduates. This is really good. Commencement, this day of great pride, may seem an odd place to talk about humility, but that's the word that kept coming to mind as I reflected ahead to this event. Because if there is a single quality that will assist you in earning other emblems of achievement later in life, it is the inverse of pride. It's the trait we call humility, close quote. Now that is good. And what's really fascinating is where Daniel's learned the concept. He took that straight from the Apostle Paul. You see, President Daniels reads Paul, and he quotes him fairly often. And his speech was based on things that Paul wrote while in prison. That's why Daniels uh, said this later in his speech. I know I'm not the first person to bring this to your attention. You may have first heard it at church. Ain't they talking about Paul? You see, the Apostle Paul could easily have been full of himself. He could easily have been prideful. He was, after all, a genius. He was. He was an expert, one of the greatest ever to live in Greek philosophy. He was an educated expert in Roman rhetoric and in Hebrew law. He bridged every culture. He, he, look at this. He summarized his personal potential for pride as a Jew. Let's just take one-third of his, of his uh, persona. He said this. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless, close quote. Wow, what a resume. And yet, instead of resting in the self-confidence which human beings adore, Paul counted all that as loss. In Jesus, he found a glory and a cause that humbled him. It changed his life. Open your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, if you would, in your New Testament, go to Philippians 3, let's read verses 7 and 8. Here's what Paul said about all those things that could have made him prideful. Everything that was gained to me I've considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of Him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ. Because he knows Jesus as Savior, Paul has a totally different perspective. He is humble, not prideful, and that changes everything. As Dr. Daniel said in his address, look at it again. If there is a single quality that will assist you in earning other emblems of achievement later in life, it is the inverse of pride. It is the trait we call humility. In our look-at-me culture, look at me, look at me, this seems very counterintuitive, doesn't it? But it's true. Folks, humility is actually the foundation of achievement. Humility is the foundation of achievement. This is true. It is transformative, and it is straight from God's Word. You continue in Philippians 3, and the Pauline root of President Daniel's speech really jumps out at you. let's read verses 12 through 14. Go to verse 12 of chapter 3. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already fully mature, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do: forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. As we try to summarize in our notes, um, you got a, a worship guide when he came in. Open it up. If you look inside there at the notes, you'll see uh, Paul presses on in humility. Now that doesn't mean humility doesn't mean the apostle just sat on his hands. That is a bad view of humility. Humility is not being a doormat. It's not retiring from challenge. Humility, listen, humility is thinking rightly of self while thinking primarily of others. Humility is thinking rightly about yourself while thinking primarily of others. Paul, the amazing apostle of God, is humble. Why? Because Paul hasn't yet obtained glorification. He knows that in this life we cannot attain creature perfection. Now, don't misunderstand what was predicted by the Old Testament prophets will indeed come to pass. God will make everyone who trusts him perfect, glorified in eternity. By the way, the fancy theological term for that is glorification. He, we will see glorification. Peter describes it really tidily. Uh, go back to 1 Peter, not yet, Aragorn. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. You take the underlined text. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect Confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amen, amen. Isn't that great? Everyone who trusts Messiah Jesus will be made perfect. We will be established in creature perfection, totally mature, the sinful flesh eliminated, all things made new in eternal glory. All God's people said, amen. amen. But in the words of Aragorn, son of Arathorn, this is not that day, right? There will come a day when every Christian will be glorified, but it is not this day, right? For now, we are still in the first part of 1 Peter 5. We are suffering for a little while. And that's why Paul says in our text, he has not reached the goal yet of maturity. Therefore, he pursues God's rewards. Look, go back to verse 14. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. This is why President Daniels can say humility will assist you in in earning other emblems of achievement later in life. When one is truly humble, it makes you stretch and reach. Humility does not lead to self-pity. That's not humility. That's pride with a funny face on it. Humility doesn't lead you to giving up or or to wallowing or settling for less. Humility makes you want to grow. This is a biblical principle that transforms lives. Pride does not make someone smart or genuine, but humility can. That's why, as a college prof, I'll tell you this. That's why middle-aged students going back to college routinely make the best grades in your class. If you're a professor, the middle-aged students make the best grades. The the middle-aged student seems to be humbly self-aware, and they're excited to learn. The younger students can be much more full of themselves. Ironically, they think they know everything and they don't see a need for the material and this can cause them to coast. Here's an excellent example of humility's impact on achievement. Look at this, this is amazing. Uh, A recent article I read in peer review, uh, Jovita Ross Gordon uh, says this. Now, her article is about research on adult learners and she she tried to make it a level playing field so she only studied people who were 3.0 grade point average or above. So these are high performing students, get this. 66% of college students who matriculated, they began college over the age of 35, they started over 35, 66% graduate in four years. In fact, a very high percentage of those graduate within three years. Only 30% of students who were under 35 at matriculation graduated within four years, and these are people with a three or 4.0 grade point average, right? Ross Gordon goes on, if you read the rest of our articles, she shows that experience plays some role in that massive disparity. But you know what the biggest factor is? Humility. Thinking properly about self motivates us to grow. Dan Folgerberg portrayed the idea really beautifully in his poem, the, the Higher You Climb. Look at this. He says, the higher you climb, the more that you see. The more that you see, the less that you know. The less that you know, the more that you yearn. The more that you yearn, the higher you climb. That's well said. That's Paul. He climbs higher. He presses on precisely because he realizes he has not arrived. An adult student. He understands how very little he knows. Specifically, Paul presses on toward rewards. The best analysis of verse 14 seems to be that Paul's goal is to be found worthy of rewards at the bima. The bima is a fancy Greek word for the judgment seat of Christ. It's where Christians are either going to gain or lose eternal rewards. I trust that every Christian realizes that we will each be judged by Jesus. We will. Paul uses a first century Roman practice to illustrate this. Citizens of Rome and only citizens were brought before the rostrum, that's the, the official speaker's platform, and, and there they were judged by the proconsul who sat on the, the bima, the judgment seat. Similarly, Jesus will judge us. What will your rewards be? What will you gain or lose? Let me give you a brief summary of all the passages that discuss this, okay? Very, uh, a, a brief basics on the bima. These are eternal rewards. It's not temporal things. This isn't about, about blessings in this life. These are eternal rewards. They are based on good works. Your justification before God is never based on works. The Bible very clear on that. It's based on faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. But your glorification sure is based on works. It's very clear. These works are tested. Paul uses a picture, he says, uh, as through fire. So he pictures it as fire. They're tested. Now here's where it gets interesting. It seems to be, if you put all the passages together, it seems the testing is based on what was your motive for that good work and what was your motive empowerment. Did you, did you do that good thing by the power of the Holy Spirit or did you do it as I usually do through your own strength, your own flesh, your sin nature? Many works are going to be burned up in Paul's phrase. That is, they're going to be rendered worthless. There'll be no reward for that good work, however good it was. But, and I take great hope in this, The Bible promises in two different places that every single Christian will receive some reward. So even if your motives are so often mixed and and you horribly operate in the flesh, you are promised there will be some reward for you. That's Paul's goal. He presses on to receive rewards in glory at the Bema. But, of course, that brings up a natural question in our minds as you're surely thinking in the voice of Aragorn, son of Arathorn, Frodo, Frodo. Isn't it selfish to focus on our rewards? Great question. Actually, it is a very great question. Our Puritan forefathers, they debated this a lot. Um, In the end, I think their conclusion is likely accurate. Um, John Owen uh, is much more long-winded than I'm going to make him here, but John Owen, I think, had the best summary of all this. He said, yes, thinking about our rewards can be selfish. Acting for rewards can be selfish, but no, it doesn't have to be. And then here's the kicker. God would not command us to work toward rewards if doing so were a de facto evil. Make sense? Yet that brings up another question which you're now asking in your best Frodo imitation. Aragon, won't being forever with Jesus in a glorified body be enough? Great query, Frodo. Thank you for asking. The bottom line answer is affirmative. Yes, of course. Glory with Jesus Christ is more than enough and far more than anything we deserve. But that doesn't mean rewards are inappropriate or useless. Think of it like this. Look, I can feed my kids just enough to keep them alive, all right? I can't, and that's fine. That's fine. But, but, if my kids work hard all day, and I am able to reward them with a feast, that's a great way to celebrate the goodness of God, right? We can rejoice. We can be glad in that provision. We can celebrate their reward. And I'll tell you this, as a father, it is a joy for me to do that. It is a joy for me to reward them. Paul presses on toward rewards that the Father joyfully longs to give. We should press on as well. And this pursuit is only possible because of Jesus' grip and his promises. Uh, Verse 12. uh, But I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. When I tore the silly tendons in my elbow here, a couple of years ago, the PT doctor handed me this gripping tool. And he said, squeeze that as hard as you can. And I said, I am. And uh, I, mean, I couldn't move the needle. There was nothing there. But after months and months and months of PT and lots of work, I could crush that sucker, right? I mean, I could really do it. Now, imagine Jesus, who has creature perfection, someone in whom there is no sin, someone who is risen from the dead with the power of God. What do you think Jesus' grip looks like? He gives us the answer in John chapter uh, 10. Read with me verse 28, please. Let's read it all together. I give them, I'm sorry, all together is an English word. It means that we speak at the same time. (laughs) Let's try again, boys and girls. That was pitiful. All right. Um, John 10, 28, all together. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. We can press on because we are in the grip of Jesus' grace. Humility means we remember every day that we need His grace. We remember Jesus' promises, which makes us confident to press on. Verse 12 is brilliant. I press on because I am held on to. I I recently showed you the high ropes element called the platform jump, right? Right? The the reason that a person can make the leap from that platform all the way out to that trapeze really has very little to do with that person. It has everything to do with this wire right here, right? Because they know that they are secure. They cannot fall. They're able to make the leap and press on to the trapeze. In the same way, you and I can press on. We can leap ahead in life. We can mature because we are firmly in Jesus' grip. All God's people said? Amen. To really press on in life requires the assurance of Jesus' grip. It takes humility, and it also requires a short memory. Chapter 13, or verse 13, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. That, that verse reminded me of the baseball saying, um, you've got to have a short memory. Ever heard that from ballplayers? I have all the time. Ballplayers love to say that. Got to have a short memory. Hall of Fame uh, pitcher Bob Feller explains what they mean by that. This is, this is really good. Feller says, every day's a new opportunity. You must put yesterday's success or failures behind and start over again. That's the way baseball is, with a new game every day. That's the way life is, close quote. Feller's correct. Now, he doesn't mean that you shouldn't study and learn from successes and failures, but every day you wake up fresh and you reach forward. Short memory means that I trust Jesus to do what he says he will do, to remove my sin as far as the east is from the west. I stop wallowing in false guilt over debts that have already been paid at the cross. Short memory also means that I rest on no laurels. Never assuming I have arrived, I press on every day in humility. My old teacher, Dwight Pentecost, hit me right between the eyes with the, uh, the summary of this verse you're going to see atop the right side of your notes. Look to the right side of your notes. Dr. P says, sometimes the blessing of God could lull us into complacency and indifference. We feel that we've earned our right to take our ease and turn over to others the running of the race. We must beware lest accomplishments and blessings cause us to withdraw. It's also true that if we are to reach the goal of running the race until the Lord Jesus draws us to himself, we must forget failures in the past. Failures can discourage, failures can bring preoccupation with self just as much, I would say maybe more, as blessings or attainments can, close quote. Let's press on. Now, let's press on to verse 15. Therefore, all who are mature should think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal that also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. We can probably recap these verses with the short sentence in your notes, live accountably. Live accountably. Paul emphasizes that maturity is always maturing. He says, if you don't think this way about pressing on toward glory, your immaturity is showing. God will correct you. If you think you can coast, here, let me just share some of the ways that we think, and I don't mean other people, we, if you think you can coast, if you assume that you know everything you need to know, if you've heard it all before, if you are on the right side of history, if you are wiser than those who came before you, you are setting yourself up for a major and most likely embarrassing correction. Being a student of the Apostle Paul, Professor Daniels of Purdue, of course, finally got around to this aspect in his graduation speech. Here's here's what he used as his illustration. On the first Earth Day, confident scholars from places like Harvard and Stanford predicted worldwide famine and starvation, a universal need for gas masks in urban areas, the complete exhaustion of crude oil and a host of other raw materials, and the coming of a new ice age, all of which were to have begun well before now, he said in 2017. Your first years of life, he said to those graduates, were filled with predictions of collapsed electric grids, planes falling from the sky, and revolutions worldwide from the Y2K, the failure of software programs to handle the change of centuries, close quote. (laughs) Maturity is always maturing. Maturity humbly fights the hubris that continues to embarrass mankind. Verse 16 deepens the accountability. Look at verse 16. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Remember, to whom much is given, much is required. This verse, verse 16 is a clear allusion to Luke chapter 12. All right, in Luke 12, Peter asks a question. He asks Jesus a question about the master's return. Jesus responds to him and addresses accountability, saying this, much will be required of everyone who has been given much, and even more will be expected of the one who has been entrusted with more. Anybody here grow up with a mother who held you accountable for wisely using what you were given? Anybody grow up with a mom who held you accountable? Okay, me too. I remember my mom looking at my report card, uh, late elementary school, probably in fifth grade, She looked at my report card, and she said, hmm, this is disappointing. And I rather petulantly said, "Um, why would you say that? They're all A's. They were really low A's, but they were still A's. And my mom said something that really, really was branded in my brain. Wayne, the grade doesn't matter. Doing your best does. You've been given more than this. You're obviously not really working hard to grow ouch, I was crushed, but she was correct. And the next nine weeks, I came home with all 100s. But more importantly, most importantly, that was the moment, at least the first time I remember, that I began to think of myself as a steward, as a servant, someone who had gifts God had given, and my job was to do my best with them. That idea first began to penetrate my thinking. So let's bring this home to our thinking. I'd like you to raise your hand, um, and when I point to you, share one gift you've been given. Something that you've been given that you are responsible to develop. What's one gift? Raise your hand. What's something you have been given? Raise your hand. Yes, what do you got? Your children. Amen. Yeah, that's a heavy, wonderful burden. What have you been given? Yes. I'm loud, loud, which you said very softly, which is kind of ironic. (laughs) Yes, yeah. But you are, let, let's put it this way so we can think of it as a stewardship issue. You have a strong personality that can be developed for the Lord or it could drive your parents absolutely crazy. Yeah, that's either way. It's your choice what you're going to do with it. Yeah, what have you been given? Raise your hand. Come on, don't let me down over here. Yeah, what do you got? Uh, of, of what? Helps, the gift of helps. Well said. Uh, I thought you said health and health also would be one. All right, everybody, everybody, think of one. I know you're, you're so gifted. You really are. Uh, but think of, try and think of one. Just picture one talent right now, one gift, one thing of, for which you are responsible, okay? Now, with that gift in mind, ask yourself this. Am I maturing in that gift? Am I humbly pressing on in development of that talent? Am I living accountably, recognizing that much is required of the one to whom much is given? Am I? Am I? kind of hurts doesn't it it's a good hurt because if he or she wants to press on a person must ask and answer these questions must and one must choose your guides wisely you see no one influences your development more than the mentors and the guides that you follow so you must choose your leaders wisely and and that's Paul's point in our last part of this thought section go to verse uh, 17 verse 17 Join in imitating me, brothers, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For I've often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They're focused on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for, my joy and my crown. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Paul contrasts the wise leader with the wandering one. Remember, if you're going to develop mature, you've got to choose your guides wisely. Well, there's a... There's a really bilateral issue here. It's one or the other. Empty leaders, they live like enemies of the cross, end is destruction, they're concerned with personal appetites, glory in shamefulness, and they're materialists. An exemplary leader, the one you want to follow if you're going to mature, eager for Jesus, end is transformation, concerned with others, they glory in becoming like Jesus and are focused on heaven. As we walk through these, we're going to walk through these real quickly. It's very useful to ask yourself, as we go through this, ask, ask yourself, what kind of leader am I following? Your maturity, your pressing on, depends on this. What am I following? And another great investigation is, which kind of guide am I for other people? Which which am I? Most Christians would say, oh, I, I follow Jesus. I follow his wise leaders. I'm a good guide because I follow the Lord. Okay. I certainly hope that's true. But we can gauge the veracity of that statement by checking two things. This is really simple, folks. It's very simple. You want to know who you're following? Ask yourself these two questions. Where do I spend my discretionary time, and where do I willingly lay down my money? It's simple. Where do I I give my money, happily, joyfully, want to give it, and where do I spend the free time that I have? If my discretionary time and money are spent extensively on me, then I'm following me. That's that's who I'm following. That's my real leader. If, If Hollywood or sports or entertainment gets a big chunk, then that's my guide, right? And I can lie to myself all day and say, oh, well, I watch, but I filter out all the bad. The fact remains, my heart is following cultural entertainment. That's my guide. That's my leader. If my non-essential time and money go to food or travel or hoarded savings or any other thing, then I must admit that thing is what directs my heart. That's what I'm pressing toward, not glory. I'm pressing toward that. Got it? All right, so with that in mind, let's quickly go to God's contrast here in Philippians. The empty leader lives like an enemy of the cross. Now, some scholars think this is describing those unbelieving uh, false teachers that plague the world. Did Then they do now. That could be. Paul warns, warns against false teachers a lot. Um, other people, and I think they're right, they think verse 18 is addressing a Christian. But it's a Christian who lives in a way that minimizes the perception of the need for Jesus or minimizes the perception of the efficacy of his sacrifice. Um, I think this is most likely because, look, Paul weeps over them. That's something he never does over false teachers. And he uses the term destruction in verse 19. That's a word that means physical death and defeat. These seem to be Christians who are living in such a way that... That They're facing real defeat because they minimize the need for Jesus and the benefits of his sacrifice on the cross. And that takes us to the second point. The empty leader ends in destruction. Destruction here is the same thing James 5 describes. It is the physical death of a Christian who, who is committed to remaining astray. It's a little like this. Let me show you. you got a little flock of geese right here. And this flock of Canadian geese, is that a good leader that they are following? <laughs> no, he is taking them into traffic, considerable traffic, four-lane road. The three-lane one wasn't bad enough. Now he's going to a four-lane road. We're going to stop before you have to see any carnage. Actually, I don't think there was any carnage except to cars. But, um, but you see the danger in following that kind of leader, right? They're in destruction. No one should follow such a leader or become such a leader look at the next poetic statement their god is their stomach the empty leader is concerned with personal appetites i find it fascinating that this was written at the height of the emperor nero's rule with his bread and circuses way of leading nero had a golden house the domus Aurea, that towered over rome towered over it. It was, it was a testimony to his apparent success in living according to his personal appetite. Of course that ends badly if you know anything about Roman history. That area was completely gutted because the people were so horrified about him after he was assassinated. This was all raised and turned into something you know as the Colosseum instead. It always ends badly when our God is our stomach. And this may be I think this may be the most tragic aspect of current culture, and I mean throughout the world right now, throughout the developed world. The, the heroes of our children, the people they're taught to emulate, are modern Neros. They really are. Look at the heroes our children are taught to emulate, and almost to a person, they are people visibly driven by their personal appetites. That's going to end badly. The empty leader then and now also glories in shame. You you can understand this one. Just think of of popular figures today. There are these truly talented people who have millions of dedicated fans, right? I mean, they attract followers the way picnics attract ants, right? But they cannot ever seem to get enough filthiness in which to wallow. Their, Their search for shamefulness seems like an addiction in which they revel. They glory in their shame, right? Finally, empty leader is a materialist. Look at the text. It says they are focused on earthly things. Thank goodness we're not like that. (laughs) We never spend most of our energy on stuff that's one day going to burn up. We always think long-term, eternally focused, right? Nope. Thank you, loud one. Nope. It's not that earthly things don't matter. They most certainly do. But the tragedy is that material things get an oversized amount of our attention. It's as absurd as if a NASCAR crew worried and worried over the paint color of their car and never paid attention to the engine, right? Or, or Or like a home builder who spent hours and hours and hours trying to choose the perfect closet door handles but just slapped the foundation of the house together. That mindset never ends well. Certainly not for us when we are focused on earthly things or when we follow, as we tend to do, such earthly, empty leaders. By wonderful contrast, the exemplary leader, the person we should be following, is eager for Jesus. Paul is eager for Jesus to serve him forever, which includes now, and to enjoy that king eternally in the kingdom to come. One of the best depictions of this, I think, came in Disney's movie Peter Pan. The old Peter Pan, okay? The, the old cartoon movie. The kids, uh, the lost boys, and that's important, this is really well written. The lost boys follow John right, John's, uh, Wendy's little brother, and and he's leading them, and they, that memorable song, we're following the leader, the leader, the leader, we're following, now that'll be in your head all day long, (laughs) following the leader, wherever he may go, dee-dum, dee-dum, and they follow John right into a trap, right, they follow him into a trap, now, everything comes through, and the dust settles in the scene, and everything works out, and then, when it all settles, the lost boys are back in their lodge, And they start finding themselves longing for a transcendent leader, a real leader. You know what the scene is? They all end up crying for something they've never known, a mother, right? Those tears of the lost boys for a transcendent leader, those are the tears of the Apostle Paul as he eagerly awaits the return of his Lord Jesus. It's what makes him a great leader. Verse 21. Go back to it. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. The exemplary leader's end is transformation. Look what Paul's concerned about for his brethren. He wants them to get to the Bema with rewards. He's concerned that they be sanctified, be more holy in this life, and that they remember that one day, remember one day you are going to be made creature perfect. That's his concern. Now, I am not picking on any ministry but I must note this. It should be of a grave concern if your ministry leaders are less interested in that and they are more interested in popularity or earthly measures. That's a problem. Philippians 4.1 reminds us the exemplary leader is concerned with others. Look, look at Paul's declaration. You're dearly loved. That is what every single human longs to hear. We long to hear that, so much so that we will even believe liars who don't really understand it or mean it. But great leaders do mean it. They love people. Great leaders love people, not as numbers, not as fools to be coddled, but as human beings for whom Jesus died. Other people are not in the way. They are not tools for the leader's own advancement. They are made in God's image, and if they are Christians, then then they're our brethren, our joy, and our crown. All God's people said amen remember how the empty leader gloried in shame Well, the exemplary leader glories in becoming like Jesus which one are you following the leader we're following revels in this becoming like Jesus both now in sanctity and forever in glory is that what people would say of us would, would they say that's her glory I mean that is her glory she glories in becoming Christ like that's what he's known for I mean, he does great work. He does all kinds of great things on earth and all that. But you know what he's really known for? He is known for the fact that he, he is so excited about becoming more like Jesus, becoming more holy, preparing himself, pressing on toward glory. Is that, is that what people say about us? Finally, the exemplary leader is focused on heaven. Now, Paul's a proud Roman citizen. I mean, he really is. He is, prou- he is not. Whatever paranoid Nero might have said, Paul was not an insurrectionist. But being a good earthly citizen is only a temporary aspect of Paul's life. His permanent citizenship is in heaven. Read with me his declaration, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. As we were taught in the middle verses 15 and 16 of today's text, we need to live accountably, right? So let's have a little come-to-Jesus moment. Are we pressing on in humility? Simple question. Am I pressing on in humility? Uh, Think of it like this. A one is never, a five is always, two is rarely, three occasionally, four is often. Get a number right now. Think of a number for you. How well am I pressing on in humility? How well am I pursuing eternal rewards by God's empowerment? How well am I maturing? How well am I following the right leaders? Give yourself a number. Okay? Now, that you have a number in your head, let me ask you the very natural follow-up question. What needs to happen for your number to move closer to 5? You you don't need me to tell you. You are an individual loved by God dearly loved. The Holy Spirit, if you're a believer in Christ, is with you. You know. You just read the text. You just read the very Word of God. I find it impossible to believe the Holy Spirit is not bringing something to your heart that needs to change, where you need to do something different to mature, to move closer to that five. One thing that certainly should change for most of us is our choice of guides. Remember those really revealing questions? Um, where do I spend my discretionary time? Where do I willingly lay down my money? My answer to those questions always reveals whom I follow. Always. It tells me again where I am on these scales Paul laid out. Look at these contrasts and ask again. Where am I? Where are my influences in my life coming from? The empty golf shirts of life, the empty leaders, are enemy of the cross, they are destructive. These days we would probably say deconstructing. Uh, They are concerned with appetite, glory, and shame, and are materialist. The people I want to follow, the leader that that I want to be, is eager for Jesus, transformative, concerned with others, and glories in becoming Christ-like while focusing on where, everybody? Pray with me. Let's pray together. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will follow exemplary leaders like the Apostle Paul, whom we can follow thanks to your word. We pray that we will be exemplary leaders that we will humbly press on every day toward glory father i thank you for the offering we're about to take (laughs) it's an amazing opportunity we just talked about it where i willingly give my money that's really where i'm following i want to follow your church i want to give toward your work and i thank you that i get to even, even though, you know, mine is done very first thing every month electronically, it is still, there's something about passing the offering plate. It is a privilege to remind me of the joy in following you and giving you y- your money. I pray that we can do so with, with real joy. In Jesus' name, amen.